All right. So there's going to be two readings this morning. The first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, and it's verses 9 to 14. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words, so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land, and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire, to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded to you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at this time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. And the second reading is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 21. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, ever, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart that shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left 
and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king of over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nishmi king of over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shephat from Abel Meloha to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed them. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shephat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and become his servant. Thank you. Hello again. Great to see you again. Well, some of you will know that I'm a keen fan of the beautiful game, or uh, soccer, as they call it in Australia. How good were the Central Coast Mariners this year? Anyway, sometimes in a game... The starting 11 have done all they can and they just can't find their way to goal. They start to get tired and discouraged. And what the manager loves to be able to do at that point, if they can, is to bring on a game changer, someone off the bench, full of energy and skill, to lift the team, provide a spark, get the breakthrough. The Christian life is not a game. But sometimes, at least to me, it feels like hard work. It's not easy being Christian in Australia today. Uh, As Dave mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we're the bad guys now. It's not easy day to day. Life is hard for us, like everyone else. And the same old sins seem to dog our steps. We can get tired and discouraged. Perhaps you're hoping and praying for God to send on a game changer. Something or someone new, fresh, relevant from God that will cut through hard hearts, including our own, and make a massive difference in our world, bring revival even. Do you feel that longing? The prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19 felt it deeply. He longed for God to do something new in his time, to cut through the hard hearts of his people. And he went searching for a game changer. What Elijah found out about God and about his purposes ought to be a great encouragement to us in our longing and our waiting 
as Christians. Uh, this term at the lakes, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Kings. We've heard about King Solomon, who started well and built the temple, but who ended in compromise and idolatry. We've seen the kingdom divide into north and south, Israel and Judah. And we've seen especially Israel decline as one king after another moved further and further away from God. But last week, with the showdown on Mount Carmel, there was a blaze of hope. The true God kicked Baal's butt, as a friend of mine said this week. Fire fell from heaven, consumed the sacrifice. Everyone, including Ahab, fell flat on their face and cried, The Lord, he is God. Maybe this will be a fresh start for Israel. I mean, God has opened their eyes and turned their hearts back to him. I'm sure Elijah was hoping this could be the beginning of something big. Repentance from Ahab. Revival in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with his sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And in the Hebrew Bible, verse 3 says, Elijah saw and ran for his life. In other words, it suddenly dawned on Elijah that nothing was going to change. In spite of God's awesome power, in spite of what everyone had said, Jezebel, the Baal-worshipping queen, was still in power. And Israel would still follow Baal. Elijah was devastated. He heads off almost 200 kilometres south to a place called Beersheba, down the south of Judah there. Have a look, verse 4. He himself, with a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He's given up. He's given his best. He's faithfully served God and seen no change in the corrupt nation. It is heartbreaking for him. Why did God allow Jezebel to continue her reign of terror? She outlives Ahab. It's not until... 2 Kings 9, that she gets what's coming to her. It's one of the constant cries of the Bible. How long, O Lord, will your faithful people suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? God doesn't answer that question for Elijah right away, but he does care for him. God sends his angel strengthens him with food and drink, 
watches over him while he sleeps. It wasn't God's time to bring revival, but he hasn't left Elijah. Eventually, Elijah gets up and travels to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. That's exactly the same place as Mount Sinai. Uh, It's off the map, way down to the south, about 400 kilometres further on. Now, that's a long way. What is this trip to Horeb all about? It's more than just getting away from Jezebel. If that was all that was on Elijah's mind, uh, Beersheba in Judah was perfectly safe. There's something else going on here. Elijah's going back to where the covenant was made. The making of the covenant through Moses at Mount Sinai was a total game changer. Nothing like that had ever happened before. God rescued the whole nation out of slavery in Egypt about 1300 BC and made a covenant with them. It was like a wedding. We know how special and life-changing weddings are. God entered into an exclusive relationship with Israel and it changed everything for them. The heart of the covenant was this. God said, I will be your God and you, Israel, will be my people. Do not worship the gods of any other nation. If you obey, then here are all the blessings. Everything will go well for you. But if you do not obey, then here are the judgments. Ultimately, the Lord will destroy your nation. There are lots of ideas here in 1 Kings 19 that connect Elijah back to Moses. Moses, too, despaired over the hard-heartedness of the people and asked for God to take his life. God also fed Moses in the desert with miraculous food. Remember the manna. Elijah travels 40 days and 40 nights without food, just like Moses was 40 days and 40 nights with God on the mountain without food. Verse 9 says Elijah went into a cave and spent the night, just like Moses had hidden in the cleft of the rock when God appeared to him. Back in Exodus 33 and 34, after the fiasco with the golden calf, God had reaffirmed his covenant with Moses on the mountain. Now Elijah comes to Mount Sinai because in his thinking, the covenant, God's agreement with his people, is broken. It's out of date. Elijah is looking for a new covenant from God, something that will cut through the hard hearts of his people, something that will make the difference in Israel's nightmare. Verse 9, And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's a strange thing for God to say, don't you think? The last couple of chapters, God has directed every moment in Elijah's life. He's told him to go and hide in the Kerith Ravine. God told him to go to the widow in Zarephath. 
God told him to go and present himself to Ahab. But what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah answers, verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. It's all over. We've lost. The covenant has been rejected. Elijah wants a game changer. A new word from God. A word for his day. Not something that's 500 years old and so obviously powerless. We've seen all the similarities with Moses and the giving of the covenant, but the next bit is really different. And that's the whole point of this chapter. In the reading we heard earlier from Deuteronomy... Moses said, Remember the day. The mountain blazed with fire to the heavens. There was a storm and an earthquake. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. See, God was in the fire. God was in the earthquake. And God spoke to Moses. He spoke lots of words. He spoke clearly. He spoke the covenant Now let's read again what happened with Elijah. Verse 11. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. The still small voice, says in the King James Version. A gentle whisper here. There are a number of ways to translate this phrase. I think the NRSV has it best when it says, A sound of sheer silence. Here's the key word used in Psalm 107. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. It was as quiet as it could get. A sound of sheer silence. Poetically, we might say, the silence was deafening. Can you see the build-up? Elijah's come to the mountain for a new word from God. The build-up. The Lord says he's about to pass by and then nothing. Silence. The Lord is not there in any of the ways that Elijah expects. The famous still small voice tells Elijah nothing. Look what happens immediately after. Verse 13. Elijah goes out. What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question again. Exactly the same answer. God spoke to Elijah before and after, but God would not add to the earlier revelation he'd given to Moses. 
At that time, God had no new covenant for Elijah, nothing new to say. But then God does tell Elijah what he is to do next. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Maholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. The covenant is not dead. The covenant always had two sides to it, blessings and curses. Now, because Israel has abandoned the Lord, they will live under the curses. Hazael, in verse 15, was the king of Aram, a country to the north of Israel. He became king in time and brought terrible suffering to Israel. You can read more about that in 2 Kings 8. Jehu became king of Israel in a coup in 2 Kings chapter 9. He ousted Ahab's son, Joram, and he was an absolute butcher. He destroyed Jezebel and Ahab's whole family. Elisha was the one who continued Elijah's work after him. We'll come back to him in a minute. In other words, the Lord has things under control. The covenant given through Moses was not obsolete. Now the curses of the covenant will increasingly come into effect all the way down to the destruction of the northern kingdom at the hands of Assyria in 722. BC. That was tragic news. But God also had better news for Elijah. Verse 18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. God has things under control. He has his faithful ones who have not worshipped Baal. They're not obvious. They're a persecuted minority, but they are many. Elijah thought he was the only one, but he was wrong. More and more from here on in the Old Testament story, we see a split between the political nation of Israel and true believers. Not all Israel were God's people. And there was a faithful remnant that God preserved, even though most of the people were disobedient. This news should have been a great comfort for Elijah. He wasn't the only one. More than that, God gave him a partner in the work, a friend to share the struggle. Elijah obeys God, seeks out Elisha, He's a young farmer. He's one of the 7,000 faithful ones. God has prepared him already. And he gladly takes up the mantle, says goodbye to his family, and becomes Elijah's apprentice. See, God's purposes extend to the next generation. 
part of Elijah being faithful was raising up faithful leadership beyond his own lifetime. So it was not God's time during the days of Elijah for a game changer. But the Lord had things under control, acting in judgment on the nation and at the same time saving his chosen people and raising up the next generation. You know, I feel for Elijah because his longing for a new covenant was spot on. He realised that the law of Moses had failed to turn the hearts and minds of his fellow Israelites towards God. Elijah may have known that Moses himself spoke of a new age on the other side of exile. When the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Much later on, the prophet Jeremiah spoke these words from God. I will surely gather them from all the nations where I banish them. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I feel for Elijah because he longed to see that day. But it wasn't to be in his lifetime. And it wasn't to be an upgraded version of the law of Moses given at Sinai. But Elijah did see that day. More than 800 years later, Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James and John, up a mountain. And Luke tells us what happened. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, they spoke together about God's new covenant which was about to be established through the death and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. Here's one more verse from the book of Hebrews that helps us understand the significance of this new covenant. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The sacrifice of bulls and goats couldn't fix the problem. Even an awesome fire-from-heaven sacrifice couldn't turn the people's hearts back to God in any lasting way. But Jesus' death deals with sin properly. Jesus is the game-changer that Elijah was searching for. We are better off than Elijah. That lasting covenant that he longed for has come in Christ. The covenant that really brings the forgiveness of sins. The covenant that 
brings God's own spirit into our lives and transforms our hearts and minds so that we can live for God. Friends, our situation feels similar in many ways to Elijah's in 1 Kings 19. We too live among a people who have largely turned their backs on God. We feel at times under siege, discouraged. We are still waiting for God to keep all his promises to take down all the Ahab and Jezebels of this world and reward his people. We're hanging out for the full-time whistle. But we know God's game-changer, the Lord Jesus. And that makes a big difference. So as I finish, I want to reflect on our privilege and our confidence Because I think sometimes we are like a person who has an old Stradivarius violin gathering dust in their attic. We are the heirs of a priceless treasure, but we don't realise it. In the right hands, that instrument would make grown men weep with joy, but no one gets to hear it. The gospel of Jesus is that priceless treasure. The prophets, like Elijah, longed to see the coming of God's Messiah. And now he has come. We have all the details right here. Jesus is the game changer. He brings in the new covenant. He is The perfect king that puts Ahab to shame. He is the faithful prophet. I could go on. In Christ is every spiritual blessing. Everything we need for a godly life comes through our knowledge of him. There is our privilege. I'm underlining this because as humans we are so prone to discontent. And we live in a consumer culture that loves to stir up that discontent all the time. Now that we've got used to having Jesus, the temptation is to want something more. But we can build our lives on the gospel of Jesus. We do not need another special word from God for us, for our time. We have Jesus. We will never need more in this life than the gospel word about Jesus that is found in the Bible. We do not need another game changer. We have Jesus. He is enough. We can build our church on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Over the years I have seen many things promoted as a game-changer for churches. Evangelistic crusades, prayer marathons, Christian schooling, speaking in tongues, fasting, big church, small groups, political activism, Bible-reading marathons, conferences, etc., etc. And I find myself 
strangely drawn to the hype and the promise of quick results. But I need to remember, we need to remember that God works through the prayerful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. That's the game-changing news. That's how God cuts through hard hearts and opens blind eyes and brings life to the dead. Here's the Apostle Paul talking about being a minister of the new covenant. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We need to keep our nerve, set forth the gospel truth as plainly as we can, and watch God do his work. Some will throw it back in our face and mock us. Some will receive it with glad tears and be saved. We cannot guess God's timing. We know we're in the last days, but we don't know how much longer extra time has to run. And so it is also our privilege to pass on the gospel of Jesus to the next generation. We want our young people to trust the game changer that, Jesus, that God has sent. We want to raise up leaders who are confident in the gospel of Jesus to change lives. And that's why, as a church, we invest in our kids and youth work and in programs like MTS, it's why I know many of you are already invested in these ministries. And today we've heard how we can invest in this next generation work further afield. Our friends at that new FIEC church at Bulai share our confidence in the gospel of Jesus. They are the next generation that God is raising up and it's our privilege to support them. Even further out, we've heard from our brother Norm Gorry this week. He's um, serving faithfully in Kenya. He's in the middle of a series of workshops with 15 pastors, passing on the baton training, they call it, teaching locals how to mentor and train MTS gospel ministry apprentices in their own context there. And Norm writes, it has been good value. He, uh, he asks for our prayers. God still has things under control. If you're ever tempted to think like a little frightened group, the remnant, uh, just read again those awesome visions in the book of Revelation where God shows his apostle John the gathering without number from every language, tribe and nation. That's where history is heading. Jesus is the game changer. Jesus has already won the game for us. After his life, death, resurrection, we're up 7-0 and cruising to victory. Let's remember our privilege, put our confidence in him 
and press on for the next few minutes or years or decades that remain. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for your sovereign power and your faithfulness to your promises. Thank you for the covenant at Sinai, for all that it taught us about you and the way it pointed us forward to Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of living this side of the Lord Jesus and for all the blessings that flow to us through the new covenant in his blood for forgiveness, for the gift of your spirit, for eternal life. Father, please grow our confidence in him and in the word of his gospel to do your good work. Please raise up a new generation of bold believers and faithful leaders to grow your kingdom. Uh, we pray again, we especially commit to you our friends at Village Church in Bulai, um, Norm and Janelle, those young pastors in Kenya, please watch over them and work through them for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>